evening. If you please take your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 John. As we continue on through the book, we're in 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5, 6 through 12 is the sermon text I would like to read in the begin, starting in the beginning of chapter 5 uh, for the context, but uh, we've gone all the way up through verse 5, so we will be doing 6 through uh, 12 this evening as the sermon text, but I'll read verses 1 through 12. So we're in First John chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1 for our, for our reading. This is God's word. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now here's our sermon text. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. This ends the reading of, of God's word. Let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we, we pray that you would teach us this evening from your word, and that you would teach us about your Son, Jesus. We pray that you would help us to, to know about him. But we also pray that you would help us to know him, I pray that if there are any who are here who do not know him, that they would know him truly in a saving way. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The water and the blood and the spirit. That's a head-scratcher, I think, for most of us when we read this text. We look over that and say, okay, what, what is he talking about when he talks about the spirit, the water, and the blood? Well, I want you to recall, as we've gone through the book of 1 John, John has cycled through uh, three tests to see whether or not you are born again, because that's the purpose of the book, to see whether or not you are saved. It's a, a book on assurance of salvation. So John cycles through three tests. We've seen these many times. These tests are, one, the obedience test. A true born-again believer obeys the commandments of God as a lifestyle. Secondly is the love test. The true born-again believer loves God and proves that by loving the brothers, loving other Christians. And then the third test 
is the doctrinal test. That the true Christian believes the truth about Jesus. And that's, that's the issue that we're focusing in on again tonight. We have here in the book of 1 John, in this section, verses 6 through 12, one of the more curious texts of 1 John. At first glance, it may be hard to understand what in the world he's talking about, but if we understand this in the greater context of the book, and we see it in this immediate context as well, we can see all that John is doing is continuing on with that three-test cycle, and he's now back to the doctrinal test once again. Recall in this book that John has been refuting early Gnostic false teachers who had upset this church, who had taught false doctrine and then abandoned the church. And the church is, it was uh, in distress over those heresies. So really, in some sense, even though the text has uh, an unusual uh, reading to it there, in one sense, it's really nothing new. This is just another uh, form of argument from John about the biblical Jesus, about who Jesus really is. They, if you're a true believer, you're going to believe in the real Jesus, not some manufactured fake Jesus like that of the Gnostics or any other group for that matter. Now, this issue of believing in the true Jesus was not something that was only relevant to John in his day. I think you probably know that. It's very relevant in our own day, getting the, getting the right Jesus, believing in the true Jesus. From, from Mormons to Jehovah's Witnesses to the theological liberals uh, to atheists, all of them have a false view of Jesus. In fact, if you think about those groups, it's interesting. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, liberal theologians, and atheists have one thing in common there. They deny that Jesus is God. That's an issue. It's a big problem. One of the things that, that John deals with in his book, all, they, all of those deny that Jesus is God. Those are groups today. Some will say that Jesus is some other supernatural being, but not God. Some will say he's merely a man. Some will even go so far to say this indefensible and very ignorant statement that Jesus never even existed. Some will make that claim. Some will call themselves Christians, yet deny that Jesus is God, deny that he was born of a virgin, deny that he rose from the dead. That's not the real Jesus. And that's, that sort of issue is what John addresses here in 1 John, and something, again, that he addresses in our text this evening. So although John is addressing a specific false belief, this early Gnostic uh, heresy that was present in his day, there are many false views about Jesus today in our own, in our own time. So John's point, his main theme here, stands firm for us in terms of our application. If you have the wrong Jesus, you don't have salvation. That's John's point in this section. If you don't have the right Jesus, you, you're not saved, because only the true Jesus can save you. So belief in Jesus is not a game. It's not something you can be neutral about. You, you have to drive your stake in the ground and, and pick the true biblical Jesus, or else all is lost. So that's what this text is about. So let's go ahead and, and start looking at it. Let's look at verses 6 through 8 here. Our first point, this is God's threefold testimony to the true Jesus, verses 6 through 8. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify— the spirits and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Now, 
I'm just going to say this. I have to give a side note, in fact, before we jump into this text. If you are reading um, a King James Version or uh, an, an AV, an American Version, your verse 7 is going to be much longer than what I just read. It's going to read like this way in the King James. It says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three agree. And then verse 8 will say, There are three that bear record on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. This is called the Johannine comma, uh, the comma Johannium. This is a, a, a textual variant here in the book of 1 John. It's a little short phrase there. What that means is that um, in some manuscripts, in some Greek manuscripts, they have that longer version. Now, the problem with it is that those Greek manuscripts do not come about until about 1215 A.D. So well over 1,000 years, well over 1,100 years after the book of 1 John was written, which is why the vast majority of those who study the text of Scripture do not regard that little phrase as being original to the book of 1 John because it's so late in the game in terms of Greek manuscripts. So I will not be um, including that in here just like the New American Standard or any other modern Bible translation typically does not have that in there. Uh, rightfully so, we will be passing over that and doing what the New American Standard and, again, most other translations have. Just putting that in front of you, if you have a King James, that's why. So now to the text, okay? 1 John 5, uh, 6. This is the one who came. We'll stop there for a second. First, Jesus came. That's what John wants us to know. He came. This is referring to what John has already said uh, in his book, that Jesus is God who has come in the flesh. In 1 John 4, 2, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So it's important to note this. Jesus did not begin to exist when he was born. He existed eternally. He came to earth at a certain point in history. In fact, this is John's, one of John's first points in the Gospel of John. You recall John 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. First point he makes is Jesus is God. He's eternal. He's creator. Later on in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, 9 through 11 says, There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. He says in John 1:14 as well, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John, in his gospel, that's his first main point. Jesus is God who has come, and that's what John is saying here as well. Jesus has come. So Jesus came to earth. He did not begin to exist at his birth. He was God who, who became a man at a certain point in history. And John teaches us that Jesus was always the Christ, that he was always the Son of God. We will see in Scripture that the term Christ and the term Son of God they're used to refer to the same thing in Scripture. You've already seen this, in fact, in this chapter, what I read a minute ago in 1 John 5. 1 John 5, 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, and then verse 5 says, Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And he's talking about that in the same context. 
You recall Peter identifies Jesus this way in his great confession in Matthew 16. It says, Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See how they're used there in connection? And Jesus' response is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, that's right on, Peter. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So John's first point here is that Jesus came to earth and that Jesus is the Christ. He says, Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, what we have here is the curious part. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It's the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. So Jesus came with the water. He came through water and through blood. And then he emphasizes not through water only, but in water and blood. And that's what makes it especially head-scratching. Why does he emphasize that? Not through water only. Here's the important background that we have to understand, and this will clear it up, make it as clear as day. John was referring, or John was refuting, excuse me, a early form of Gnosticism uh, called Serinthianism that was propounded by a guy named Serinthus. Okay? Um, that's, that's the thing that John is dealing with here. Where there's a famous story about John that uh, Joel Beakey summarizes. Uh, this is what happened. It says, one of the leading Gnostic teachers at Ephesus in John's day was Serinthus, a Jew from Alexandria and a disciple of the Jewish Platonist philosopher Philo. John knew Serinthus and regarded him as an enemy. Irenaeus relates a story told by Polycarp of a time John entered the public baths at Ephesus. When he discovered that Serinthus was there, John rushed out without bathing, exclaiming, Let us leave at once. Let the bathhouse be destroyed, for Serinthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. So the scenario is, is that he goes to the bathhouse, he sees Serinthus, and he bolts out of there because he's saying this place is going to be judged because of this false teacher. That was a story that Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, had told to Irenaeus. So what did Serenthus teach that John regarded as, as such a, an evil heresy? Well, Serenthus taught that the Christ was this spiritual being. And this spiritual being descended on the mere man, Jesus, at the time he was baptized. So Jesus it was just a guy. But then the spirit, this supernatural being called the Christ, came upon him at his baptism. And then that Christ spirit departed from him right before he was crucified. Okay, So in Serinthianism, Jesus is not the Christ. He just had the spirit of the Christ dwell on him for a time. You see the difference? Namely, the spirit of the Christ dwelt on this guy, Jesus, starting at his baptism and then departed before his death. Okay, so you follow that? So John is refuting this. Think about it. John refutes that error by proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. Not that they're two separate entities, but Jesus is the Christ and was the Christ during the entirety of his earthly ministry, which was bookended by his baptism and his death. So to support this, let's just, let's just uh, build a little case here. First, we know elsewhere from Scripture that Jesus was the Christ at his birth. Not, not starting at his baptism. Luke 2.11 says, For today in the city of David there, there has been born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
So right at his birth, he's declared Christ the Lord. But John's point here is saying that it's one and the same person, uh, Jesus Christ, who was both baptized and who died on the cross. So when he talks about the water and the blood, he's referring to Jesus' baptism and his death on the cross. The water and the blood. So he came not through water only as the Christ, which is what Serinthus taught, but he also died as the Christ. He went through the blood as well as the Christ. So you remember, Serinthus denied that Jesus, died on, that, that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He denied that the Christ died on the cross because that spirit of Christ left Jesus before his death, according to him. He said that Jesus became the Christ at his baptism and then stopped being the Christ right before his death. And John says, no, no, Jesus is the Christ and Jesus was the Christ when he was baptized and he was the Christ when he died as well. He was the Christ all the way through his life, all the way through his ministry. So Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's who he is, not who he became, but who he is. Recall, at Jesus' baptism, remember this? The Father declared Jesus to be his Son. Matthew three sixteen. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There he is, the Son of God, there at his baptism. So Jesus is plainly called God's Son at his baptism. He was the son of God and the Christ at baptism, and so he came through the water, as John puts it, as Jesus Christ. And at his death as well, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy of the Christ. Remember, when Jesus had risen from the dead and he was speaking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, remember what he said to them, Luke 24, 26, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So he's saying, don't you remember all the prophecies about the Christ suffering, as I did? He hadn't revealed himself yet to them, but he's, don't you remember the Christ was meant to suffer? So Jesus' death on the cross was a fulfillment of all the prophecy concerning the Christ. For example, Isaiah prophesies most vividly of this in Isaiah 53, in verse 5, he says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And in verse 12, he says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he'll divide, with the, he'll divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. See, Jesus' suffering, that was, the Christ was prophesied to suffer. It's exactly what Jesus did, of course. So Jesus' suffering as the Christ, because he is the Christ, is a fulfillment of Messianic or, or Christ prophecies. The Father testified, also you recall, at Jesus' death with various supernatural signs that Jesus was the Son of God. Remember, when Jesus died, he turned day into darkness, he ripped the, the temple curtain. He sent an earthquake. He opened the tombs and, and raised the dead. And, of course, Jesus resurrected from the dead uh, on the third day, which vindicated that he was the Son of God. 
You remember when he cried out as he was dying and the temple curtain tore, it says this in Mark, when the centurion saw that, when he saw that he cried out, he says, when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last and the temple curtain was torn, it said, the guy said, truly this man was the son of God. See, all these things were pointing to, his death was pointing to, this is the son of God. This is the Christ. That's what God was testifying to. So what we have here from John is two external witnesses, the water and the blood. And both of them point to the same thing, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus' baptism points that he's the Son of God. God said it audibly. His death points to it by the fulfillment of prophecy accompanied by supernatural signs. His, his, His baptism and his death point to him being the Christ, the Son of God. And this is a direct refutation of that Serinthian heresy, which said, well, he was the Christ in his baptism, but not in his death. And John says, no, not through the water only, but also through the blood. Both. He was the Christ all the way through because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So that's the water and the blood, the baptism and death of Jesus. He is the Christ through and through. Yet John here declares a third witness on top of those two, a third witness to Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God. And this is an internal witness, which is the Holy Spirit. Looking again at 6 through 8, it says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three, and the three are in agreement. Now, again, John has emphasized throughout his letter here the internal uh, witness of the Holy Spirit as a source of assurance of our salvation. Earlier in 1 John 2.27, he says, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But, at, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is, not, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. In other words, this anointing is the Holy Spirit uh, bearing witness in your heart regarding the truth about the gospel. The Holy Spirit, therefore, teaches the born-again person to believe in the true Jesus. The Holy Spirit teaches us to believe in the true Jesus who went through the water and the blood as the Christ, because he is the Christ. So so Jesus' baptism witnesses that he is the Christ, the Son of God. His death witnesses that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit bears witness in our hearts that he is, indeed, the Christ, the Son of God. Peter acknowledges this in the book of Acts, uh, that the Holy Spirit is a witness uh, to Jesus Christ as well. He says in Acts 5, verse 30, it says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God has exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we are told here in 1 John that the Spirit testifies and that the Spirit is truth. In fact, sometimes the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. Uh, Jesus called him that in John 16. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all truth. 
So just as Jesus is the truth and God the Father is the truth, the Holy Spirit, of course, then, is the truth, as we're told here. So John's point is this. Whatever the Spirit testifies is truth, because he is the truth. It's impossible for God the Holy Spirit to lie, in other words. So notice, John appeals to three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These are three sources of testimony to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, notice he says as well that these three witnesses are all in agreement. This is important as well. In other words, he's saying the Spirit, the water, and the blood, they all testify to the same thing, the same truth. They don't contradict each other. They say the same thing. And the same thing that these, things, these three witnesses are saying, again, is that Jesus is the Christ. So you can think of uh, the water and the blood. Those are historical witnesses. And you can think of the Spirit as an experiential witness. You can think of the water and the blood as external witnesses and the Holy Spirit as an internal witness uh, to this truth that Jesus is the Christ. The water and the blood refer to the historical realities that Jesus was the Christ and was shown to be the Christ during his earthly ministry from his baptism all the way through his death. And uh, again, there's no distinction between Jesus and the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. You recall actually earlier in the book, it says the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. So John opens the book in 1 John 1, 7 with that truth that Jesus is the Son of God and through him we have salvation. It's the same idea that he's bringing up here, but just in different words. So Jesus was the Christ during the entirety of his earthly ministry, not just part of it as Serinthus taught. And that's vitally important because according to Serinthianism, the Christ did not die on the cross. Just a mere man did. Just a mere man called Jesus, who, in his view, was not the Christ at that time. If, if the Christ did not die on the cross, then we don't have forgiveness of sins. And that, that's the crucial issue here. The Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, truly God, truly man, he must have died for our sins. Because no mere man can take the full wrath of God on our behalf. No mere man can be the Savior of the world. If Jesus is the Savior, then he must be God and man. Jesus must be the Son of God. He must be the Christ. The Gnostics denied that, Jesus, that, that the Christ could be truly human, and therefore they denied that Jesus was the Christ when he died on the cross. But denying that Jesus is the Son of God, the appointed Savior, that shows that you're not a true Christian. You're not saved unless you believe in the true Jesus, who is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. So if you call Jesus anything else but that, you've got the wrong Jesus. So the historical witness of Jesus' earthly ministry, bookended by his baptism and his death on the cross, those are crucial witnesses to the truth that Jesus is the Christ. But I want to remind you, even with those two historical witnesses, no one would ever believe in him with just the water and the blood as witnesses. You must have that third witness as well, which is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit in your heart to continually persuade you of the truth about Jesus. Calvin said this, it's the Holy Spirit who seals in our hearts the testimony of the water and the blood. In other words, the Holy Spirit takes these historical witnesses and says, yes, they are true, and he persuades you 
to believe them. He gives you a heart to receive those, those truths. When I was born again, when I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit permanently and continuously began to bear witness in my heart that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. And without the Holy Spirit, I would not have believed that. See, I knew about the historical Jesus. I knew about the water and the blood. I knew that he was the Christ. Right? I knew that's what the Bible teached or taught about him being he was the Christ, the Son of God. But I did not uh, truly believe that until the Holy Spirit pressed it in my heart that I would trust him as my Savior. This is why the Westminster Confession says this, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the Scriptures is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And that's the crucial ingredient here that John brings in. Without the Holy Spirit, we would not believe the gospel. Again, this testifies to the, re- to the reality that the Holy Spirit must first make you born again in order for you to believe, which is what 1 John 5, 1 is saying. Whoever is believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So to summarize this point, this is the, the, the deep point, what we have here is a case for believing in the true Jesus. John builds his case here in this section by calling three witnesses to stand for this truth. The spirit, the baptism of Jesus, and the death of Jesus. All three of those witnesses testify that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, What John does with this now is he takes that and he presses an application onto us. Look at verses 9 and 10, our second point. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his son. The one who believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. So John continues his use of courtroom language, using witnesses and testimonies. John argues here from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if we receive the testimony of men, well, how much more then should we receive the testimony of God? His testimony is greater. There's a principle, uh, really throughout the entirety of Scripture, that says you should not accept a, a, a claim that somebody makes unless on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So, for example, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. That principle is expressed throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament. So he's saying, upon, upon the testimony of two or three witnesses, you can have confidence that a matter is true. However, there is the possibility even upon two or three men testifying that they could have conspired together to lie. In fact, we've seen that in Scripture before in the case of Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. Remember, Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. He wouldn't sell it to him. So Jezebel puts up two false witnesses, two false witnesses to to accuse Naboth of blaspheming God, and and they have him put to death. They conspired together. So it is possible with lying men to have two or three witnesses conspire together to be a false witness, and you have a false uh, claim being made. Yet Yet John's point is this, though. We will accept the testimony of men on two or three witnesses. Okay, that, that's a reliable thing. That's, that's God's word. That's his test there. So he's saying if we will accept the testimony of men 
who are capable of lying, yet we'll still accept their testimony if they have two or three witnesses. How much more then should we accept the witnesses of God from the God who cannot lie? It's impossible for God to lie, and yet he still gives us those three witnesses here, in this case, the spirit, the water, and the blood, those internal and external witnesses. Those are God's testimony, he says, concerning his son, the spirit, the water, and the blood. That's, how God, that's God's proclamation concerning Jesus. He's given us three witnesses. If we accept the witnesses of men, how much more then should we accept the witness, witnesses of God who cannot lie? So John, like as I said earlier, God spoke about Jesus being his son when he was baptized. Jesus fulfilled prophecy uh, when he died on the cross, uh, fulfilling prophecy about the Christ. And the Holy Spirit is that internal witness uh, for us to believe the truth about Jesus. And those are God's witnesses to Jesus. So if we accept the testimony of three men and their testimony agrees, they're not given contradictory uh, testimony, the point is how much more should we accept the non-contradictory threefold testimony of God that he gives us here? You see, God's testimonies concerning his son are always in agreement. In fact, God's testimonies about anything are always in agreement. So it's not, it's not merely one witness or another. It's not, let me listen to that witness, but not that witness. All three of these witnesses are, are in perfect uh, sync here, perfect unity. And they provide, all three together provide certainty for the believer. You see, there are, there are false believers who will try to claim one of these witnesses. But see, it's all three together. For example, a Mormon will say, there's, there's a burning in the bosom, which is another way of saying, well, God has really impressed on my heart that Mormonism is true. So he's really claiming uh, the spirit. The problem is the, the biblical witnesses contradict that. You see, if you go to scripture, you'd find out that's not the Holy Spirit testifying to you because your so-called testimony from the spirit is contradicted by the word of God. Your testimonies are not in agreement. Your claim of feelings of of this being true are not in agreement with the written word of God. But what John is saying is we have the written word of God and the internal testimony of the Spirit being in full agreement. See, it's all three together. The Holy Spirit presses on a born-again person the truth about Jesus. And that truth is, is, is brought out from the word of God. The word, as the Westminster Confession said, he bears, he bears witness by and with the word. Not apart from it, not contrary to it, but with it and in agreement with it. So the threefold witness of God is to be accepted as infallible and authoritative. That is, the evidence is from Scripture and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to understand something here that, that John wants us to get as well. You have a moral obligation to respond to God's testimony concerning Jesus in the right way. In other words, you're not allowed to be neutral on the question of who Jesus is. That's one of these points here that he's making forcefully. Look at verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. So first, if you believe in the true Jesus, the biblical Jesus, then you hold those three witnesses, the spirit, the the water, and the blood, uh, in your heart. They They are something that you continuously believe concerning Jesus. The true believer is always believing in Jesus. But then he says, 
But for those who reject this testimony concerning Jesus, it's a totally different story. The one who does not believe, the one who does not believe God has made him a liar. He's saying God, had, God the Father has declared something about Jesus by these three witnesses, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And John's saying, if you don't believe that, you're not believing God. You're not believing what he has said. What's that mean? That means that you're calling God a liar. That's what he says. You have made God a liar when you don't believe what he says about Jesus. If you reject what God has revealed concerning Jesus, it's a great offense to him to say, I don't believe you. You're not telling the truth, God. If you don't believe that testimony concerning Jesus, that he is the Son of God and that eternal life is found only in him, you're not acting morally neutral. You're calling God a liar, John says. He has said something about Jesus. You don't believe him. You say he's telling a lie. That's why John Stott said this. This is great. He's right on. He says, unbelief, it's not a misfortune to be pitied. It's a sin to be deplored. See, this, you cannot be neutral. God has declared something. Either you believe it or you don't. And if you don't, John says you're calling him a liar. And then John really brings it home here for our third point, the consequence of not believing in the true Jesus, he says, is the difference between heaven and hell. Look at verse 11 and 12. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. The testimony that God has given concerning Jesus is that Jesus, or that, is that eternal life is found and is given to us in Jesus Christ alone. God has declared you can have eternal life in no one else but in my son, the true Jesus. Now notice, notice first, God has given us eternal life. Given. A couple points here. Eternal life is not something you have by nature. It must be acquired, so to speak. In fact, because of our sin, we don't have life. We have death. The wages of sin is death. And secondly, this tells us you cannot earn eternal life. Again, because of your sin, you're, you earn death. By sinning, eternal life must be given to you as a gift. Now, this raises the question, what is eternal life? What is eternal life? Jesus uh, defines it for us in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 3. Jesus said this, This is eternal life. He's praying to God the Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life then means that we know God, that we have fellowship with him, that we are united to him. He is the life. And we only have life if we know him. And Jesus Christ is the only way to know him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. True life is in knowing God, he says. Yes, you say, well, well when we're unbelievers, we're still alive. Yes, only physically. But spiritually, we are dead. Remember Ephesians 2? You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Yes, physically you're alive, but spiritually you are dead because of your sin by nature. But God makes us alive with Christ. Eternal life is in him. 
Because we, we, we come to know him. We come to be united to him. Notice, notice this as well. If you're a Christian, he says, you have eternal life now. He has given us eternal life, it says. And that's because we know God now through Jesus, if you're a Christian. Now, of course, in heaven, the full realization of eternal life will be met because we'll know God because we'll see him face to face. Our indwelling sin that remains in us now keeps us from, from seeing God fully. But when he removes that, we will see him as he is, as John said earlier in the book. Jesus himself said that he came to give life. In fact, in life abundantly. John 10.10, 10, I, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, he said. So, so knowing Christ, knowing Jesus, is true spiritual life. It's what we were created for, to be in fellowship with God. Because of sin, we were estranged from God, we're enemies of God, but Jesus, by, by taking away our sins, reconciles us to God so that we may have life by knowing him again. But that's only true for those who believe what God has said about Jesus. Again, in verse 12, he who has the Son has the life, but he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. In fact, the same idea is taught very plainly in John's Gospel, John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So, this is it. If you don't believe in Jesus, the true Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God, then you don't have your sins taken away. Because it's that true Jesus who takes away his people's sins. John said earlier in his letter, 1 John 3, 5, you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. So if you don't believe in the one who takes away sins, then your sin remains on you. That's what John 3, 36 says, the wrath of God abides on him. If your sin remains on you, you will be punished for what you have done. That's just justice. That's just fair. But if you have Jesus, then he's taken away your sin and the punishment that comes from it. So you can only have eternal life by being in fellowship with God. Enjoying the thing that you were created for. Glorifying God and enjoying him forever. If you believe what God has said concerning Jesus, you'll have that life. You will truly know him. But he says, if you don't, you will not be saved. You'll be separated from that fellowship with God. You will not have life in him. Instead, you only know God is a consuming fire who's pouring out his wrath forever. So if you're not trusting in Jesus today, I urge you, trust in him today. See, God has spoken about Jesus in Scripture. That's what this text is about He's spoken about Jesus in Scripture, that he is God's Son. He is God's Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the prophet, priest, and king for his people, who came to save his people from their sins. And what he says is, go to him. Believe what God has said about Jesus. Trust that you'll have life and no one else but this true Jesus alone. I want to close here, one last passage, what Jesus himself said about how you can go to heaven. He said in John 14, he says to his disciples, 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He's saying, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm going to go be with my Father. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I'll bring you there later. And he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, well, hold on. He says, Lord, we, we don't know the way to where you're going. How, how could we know the way? Jesus says, you know the way. Thomas says, no, I, we don't know the way. Jesus says, yes, you do, Thomas. I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. He says, no one comes to the Father but through me. See, you must have Jesus. You must have Jesus to have the Father. You must have Jesus to have eternal life. If you have Jesus, you'll know the Father as well. And as Jesus says, this is eternal life, to know the Father in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for testifying in your word and by your spirits to the truth about who Jesus is. He's not a mere man. He is not some supernatural entity. He has, is and has always been the Christ, the Son of the living God, who through the entirety of his earthly life was the Christ, who was baptized as the Christ, who died as the Christ, so that we could be saved. Lord, I pray if there are those who, who do not know the true Jesus, that you would, by your Spirit, press these truths onto them, that you would effectually call them, persuade them of this truth about Jesus that you have testified about. Lord, we thank you for your great salvation in him, the eternal life found in Jesus. We pray that we will praise you for that and be humble before you, knowing that it is a gift that you have given to us. We ask this in Jesus' name.